Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. You can join me for our next virtual book club event that is taking a deeper dive into the lasting impact of this summer's book, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. It is going to happen this Thursday at 8 p.m. August 20th at WDET.org slash events. We have been having a really great summer reading Invisible Man together and talking about the themes in that book that have such relevance and power right now in 2020. And for this event, I'm going to be joined by Valerie Prince, who is an associate professor of African-American studies at Wayne State University. She and I are going to talk about African-American literature and art during Ellison's writing of Invisible Man. And we'll also talk about how women are depicted in the book. If you haven't already, you should join the WDET Book Club group on Facebook, where we have been having a great digital conversation about Invisible Man and what's happening right now all summer. You can also, of course, be listening here on Thursdays when we have guests on to talk about Invisible Man. We've had several authors join us, and tomorrow we are going to talk again about Invisible Man. Um, and you all want to join us for the show tomorrow for that, but then at 8 o'clock tomorrow night, uh, you will be able to join us for this virtual book club event. Again, if you go to wdet.org slash events, you can get all of the details, and we hope to see you there. Up first today is a week that is filled with political speeches and nonstop appeals to voters. The Democratic National Convention has already focused much of its time on what the party sees as Donald Trump's biggest failures as president. But behind a lot of that messaging is a really important question. How do we want our economy to work in this country? And do you think the economy is working for you? Clearly, in the midst of the global pandemic that has ravaged small businesses and created mass unemployment, the answer for most Americans to that question is no. But even in the best of economic times, do you think the economy is fair to you? Or do you think it's set up in a way that spreads opportunity unevenly across the board? You think it's a setup that benefits those who are already at the top. We want to spend the hour today talking about all of those questions and about why this country is producing so many super rich people, so many people who can call themselves billionaires. What is it about our economy that seems to funnel money that way to the top? And what actual policies could we change to make the economy fairer? Joining us now to talk more about this is Dean Baker. He's a senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He's also author of the book, Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured, structured to Make the Rich Richer. Dean Baker, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Thanks a lot for having me on. So I, I want to start here, and I want to talk about this glut, I suppose, of billionaires that seems to be uh, being created here in America and talk about what is it about America's economy and what is it about this time in America's economy that is creating those advantages? What are the things 
that we can point to that make it possible for people to accumulate so much wealth at the top, even as the middle and the bottom of the economy get squeezed tighter and tighter? Well, what I focus on in that book and really much of my work is the way in which we structured the economy. And this is a point that isn't often brought up in public debates. I mean, the point, you know, people often talk about taxes and transfer policy. You know, should we have more Social Security? Should we have higher taxes on the rich? Those are all important things. I don't mean to, to denigrate that at all. But to my view, the big question is why do we structure it so they get so much money, the rich get so much money in the first place? And my poster boy in this is Bill Gates. Now, a lot of people like Bill Gates. They go, oh, he gives all this money to charity and the, you know, his research. That's, that's all good. That's fine. But let's ask how he got the money. And the point I always make is he got the money because Microsoft has copyrights and patents on software. Copyrights and patents are government-granted monopoly. We don't have to have copyrights and patents, or we could have them shorter. We could have them different. Those are government policies. And if we took an extreme case, I mean, there's other ways to finance research and development. We do use other ways, too. So if we didn't have copyrights and patents, what I like to say is Bill Gates would still be working for a living. So this is just one example. I mean, I can give you several others, and I will over the course of our discussion. Mm -hmm. But the point here is we've structured the economy in ways that allow people to get incredibly rich, and we didn't have to structure it that way. We could have different mechanisms for financing innovation. And, and, and again, we do. I mean, uh, another example I'll just give you is um, how we finance uh, pharmaceutical research. We're seeing this now with the uh, financing Operation Warp Speed, the financing for treatments and a vaccine. The government is paying the money up front so you have Moderna, which is thought to be the leader in developing a, a U.S. vaccine, at least. We've paid close to a billion dollars for their research. Mm. So, you know, they often say, well, we need incentive. We gave you incentive. We paid it. And they go, well, what about our risk? You had no risk. Suppose they go, you know, they throw up their arms and they go, you know, it doesn't work. Go, well, that's really too bad. But we, we gave you the money already, so you had no risk. But on top of that, we're going to give them a patent. And then we're going to beg them not to charge us too much money for the vaccine. So we don't have to do it that way. Mm. So, you know, again, I could give you other examples, but that's just such an obvious one to me that gets very, very little public discussion. But there's enormous amounts of money involved in that. So so is there something about the way we have changed the rules then that make this possible? Was there a time in America, for instance, when we did better at making sure that uh, that, that opportunity was not so concentrated at the top. Absolutely. We've, we've changed the rules in a wide variety of areas. You know, I started with the patents and copyrights. Well, we've made, made both of those longer and stronger and applied to all sorts of different areas. So you can now patent life forms. You could patent business methods. You could patent software. That needs to be the case. So we've, we've done that, you know, again, with, with patents and copyrights, with finance. We, it's often said deregulate. I, I say we have different regulations because it's not as though we have no regulation in finance. We have plenty of regulation, but it's very much towards benefiting the rich. So if you go back to the, the, the crisis in 2008-2009, Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and the rest were not running around saying, get the government out. They're saying, save our rears, you know. So... You know, that, that's another example. Uh, you know, uh, Facebook, uh, I, lo I love this one because, you know, we, you know, obviously we all benefit from the Internet and, well, people give different views on Facebook. But one of the things we did back in the, in the 90s as we were regulating, setting up a regulatory structure for the Internet, we said that the rules on libel 
that apply to other media. So, you know, NPR, for example, mm-hmm. or, you know, New York Times, whoever you might say, the rules on libel that apply to all the traditional media don't apply to Facebook. So if you guys, you know, if I were to say something horribly libelous, you'd be liable. I mean, you personally, I mean, you know, the, the, the station there would be liable. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I did that on Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg goes, well, too bad. You know, it didn't have to be that way. Again, you could argue the merits of it, but you could have said, okay, well, here's a new new form of media. There should be subject to the same libel laws as Time Warner and New York Times and all the others. But we didn't do that. We said, no, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have to worry about those things. So he's now one of the richest people in the world. Hmm. So you could point to all sorts of things like that where we structured the economy in ways that allow people to get incredibly rich where we could have structured it differently. And I think the natural follow-up to that question is, does that preclude the kind of opportunity for other people that we would like to see? In other words, is it a zero-sum game if Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg are as wealthy as they are, or if Jeff Bezos is the wealthiest man on the planet, does that mean that you and I can't get uh, the, the things that we need? Does it mean that, that people who live in poverty live in more poverty because of that? Well, it's not precisely zero-sum. So the question, you know, if we had someone, you know, Bill Gates on here, or, you know, someone's a big fan of Bill's, um, you know, they would be saying, well, you have to give these people incentive. And I- I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, yeah, we have to give people incentive. But the question is, how do you structure it? So if they want to make the case that their incredible wealth is not standing in the way of ordinary people having decent lives, then what they want to say is, well, because we gave Gates this incredible incentive and Zuckerberg and Bezos this incredible incentive, we've seen so much more growth. That would have to be the story they'd have. And you go, okay, well, what's the evidence for that? Well, growth has actually been very weak, certainly in the last two decades, and actually pretty much uh, 90s was a good decade for overall growth, but the 80s wasn't. So if we look at this period of upward redistribution from you know 1980 there about to the present, we have four decades, and overall growth has been pretty weak in that period. So if they want to argue the case, again, it's not zero-sum. So if they could show, you know, yeah, look, because – you know, we have this incentive, all these really smart, energetic people of these great innovations, and we're all benefiting from it, to have to show that with overall growth. And, and we just can't find that. There's just zero evidence for it. Really, mostly evidence points the other direction. Growth mm-hmm. has been slower. I won't necessarily say that was the reason. I may give you that story, but I won't necessarily argue that. I'll just say that there's really no evidence that that's led to more rapid growth. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with Dean Baker, senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. We're talking about our economy here in America and why it seems at this point to be creating so many people who can call themselves billionaires. Uh, It's not just, in fact, people who can call themselves billionaires, but the idea of people who are super rich, who have millions and millions of dollars is something that has exploded in the last few decades. Uh, We want to hear from you whether you think the economy is working for you as well as it does for those folks. Why or why not? Do you think we should have as many billionaires as we do in this country? Do you think that's just an outgrowth of free market capitalism? Or do you think we ought to regulate things a little better to make sure that opportunity and wealth is distributed a little more fairly. What would you support? 
as a way to change that? Would you support a wealth tax on the richest Americans? Would you support more regulation that prevents people from getting that wealthy in the first place? Uh, Give us a call and let us know what you're thinking about the economy right now, especially as we go into a fall uh, period of an election year and we're going to be making a huge decision about leadership in Washington, which will have an effect on what the economy looks like. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work all of those comments into the conversation as well. Especially call and tell us what you would do differently, uh, how you would structure the economy uh, to spread that wealth around a little better. Uh, before we get to phones, Dean, uh, Jim in Southfield couldn't stay on the line, but he says we need big changes, and it starts with the tax code being overhauled. I, I, I want to ask you about the difference between stopping these kinds of inequalities up front, in other words, changing policy so that it is not possible to get as wealthy as people like Mark Zuckerberg or, or uh, Jeff Bezos are. And then the opposite end of that, I guess, which would be allowing people to get as wealthy as they can, but setting up a tax code that made it uh, fairer on the back end. In other words, ask those people to carry a much larger share of the tax burden than they do. Is that an either or? Uh, and if it is, which of the which of the approaches makes more sense? Well, I don't see it as either or. I mean, we want a progressive tax code, progressive meaning richer people pay more. And I think our system should be more progressive than it is. And, you know, that's an area I've worked on. I could talk more on that. But I think that is the less important issue. So if you go, okay, you know, we'll go back 40 years. We had much less inequality in 1980 than we do today. What's been the big change? Most of that has been on the the before tax side. So that's where I would focus. And what I would say is two things. One is that in many cases, I think we could actually make the economy grow more quickly with structures that didn't lead to so so much inequality, not Mm -hmm. that the inequality per se was leading to slower growth, and in some cases I think that's true, but simply that'd be more efficient. Uh, you know, again, going back to the examples of, of drug patents, suppose that we had we paid for all the research up front, it's all open, so as soon as you get a research result, everyone in the world gets to see it, and then when a drug's developed, it's sold as a cheap generic. I think that'd be hugely more efficient than what we have today, because you wouldn't have so much waste with duplicative research, and even worse, you wouldn't have so much effort because the same incentive that we give a drug company to innovate, we're also giving them an incentive to, to, to misrepresent their drugs in order to sell more of them. And, mm. you know, we see the cost of this. The opioid crisis was at least in part a story where drug companies said, hey, these aren't addictive. They knew they were, but they marketed them by saying that, you know, they're not addictive like the previous generation of opioids. And, of course, that turned out not to be true. If they didn't have patent monopolies, they'd have no incentive to lie like that. And since all of research is publicly available, they wouldn't have the ability to. So I think we could actually make the economy more efficient by, at least in many cases, by adjusting it so it doesn't lead to so much inequality. So I really do focus on the before tax side. I should also point out, just as a practical matter, mm-hmm. you know, this is uh, this was driven home to me. I remember I was once debating a libertarian economist. 
and uh, he he was going on about back in the old days, you know, the tax rate was 95%, and then you had factored this in, you could have tax rates of 100%, you know, or over 100%. And I said, well, come on, no one paid that. And then he looks at me and goes, well, if you have a tax that no one's paying, it's probably not a very good tax. <laughs> right. And I go, oh, yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it just it just drove home the point that, you know, if I want to tax you, let's say, 90 cents on the dollar, which maybe I do if you're really rich, um, you have a really big incentive to find ways not to pay that tax. Mm-hmm. So if you could come up, you know, let's say you make $100 million a year and I'm going to tax you 90 cents on the dollar, well, if you'd be willing to pay someone – $89 million to hide $100 million of income. And, you know, there's smart people in the world, and some of them will find ways to do that. So I think it's better to focus on how could we prevent the economy from creating so much inequality in the first place. But, yeah, I, you know, I absolutely would favor a more progressive tax system. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Glenn in Gross Point Woods. Glenn, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Yeah. Hey, um, I came into the uh, conversation a little late, and I heard it and uh, about uh, what ideas do I have. And one that hit me a while ago, I've had this discussion with a friend of mine several times. I got this novel idea of how to redistribute wealth, and it's called pay people more. <laughs> if companies were able, to, were, went back to like paying a reasonable, way, you know, a fair, more reasonable wage, uh, not so much money would accumulate at the top. Hmm. Um, another, another thing is I look at wealth in this country over the last 40 to 50 years, going back to say 1980, look at kind of like a glacier. Cause everybody says, Oh, if we give this, this money will be reinvested. It doesn't seem to be reinvested. It seems to be locked up like, you know, like glacial ice yeah, at yeah. the very top of the, uh, of the wealth pyramid. Yeah. Glenn, uh, great points. And I really appreciate the, the call. I think the question Dean is if you did, for instance, pay people more or require companies to pay people more, would that prevent the wealth accumulation at the top that we're seeing? Is that Are those two things tied together? Well, I think it's part of the story. I mean, you know, you, you have to, I think, directly attack some of the institutional structures. Uh, again, I'll pick on patents and copyright monopolies, the way we structure finance. Um, corporate governance, uh, you know, our, our, our CEOs are now getting – um, in many cases, two or three hundred times the pay of ordinary workers. If you go back forty years, have been uh, twenty to thirty times. So, you know, these are institutional structures. But absolutely, I mean, a p- big part of this story is the weakening of unions. And I, I shouldn't have to say that to Detroit radio station. Everyone there knows that. You know, you go back to to the sixties and seventies. Over twenty percent of the private sector workforce was unionized. Today, it's around six percent. I mean, the unions are just. Um, you know, much smaller, much weaker than they were four decades ago, and that has certainly been a factor. Um, the minimum wage, you know, we talk about it keeping pace with inflation, which would be good because it hasn't. But if you had a minimum wage that kept pace with productivity growth, so as the economy got wealthier, the minimum wage rose as well. If that sounds far-fetched to people, we used to do that. The minimum wage first came into effect nationally, at least in '37. From 37 to, to 68, it tracked productivity growth. If it had continued to track productivity growth, it would be $24 an hour today. Could you imagine if you know the lowest paid worker, a custodian, a dishwasher, the lowest paid worker was going $24 an hour? Uh, you know that it would be quite a different world. So yeah, I mean, I think we have to take steps to raise wages at the bottom. Absolutely, 
But again, a big part of the story is to change the institutional structures that allow for so much wealth to go to the top. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Glenn, interesting points, and thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Corey in Detroit. Corey, what's up? Hey, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? All right. Man, you guys are talking my language. <laughs> I, I just want to say I'm a big fan, and, and for years I believed in uh, in uh, democracy and Bernie Sanders and helping people that need help. But what I've come to learn in the past few months is that I've really educated myself on the financial system of America, and the things that your guest is saying are spot on. The uh, post, Speaking of patents, the, the United States Postal Service just took out a patent for blockchain technology to help assist us in the upcoming elections. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with quantum computing and blockchain technology, but it's the way of the future. And I truly believe that the transparency in the blockchain system and the real-time information that you receive will level the playing field for the common man. And I would just um, suggest to anybody that's listening and can hear my voice right now, please look into the company called Ripple. They are changing the way the world does finance right now, and it's an opportunity to get involved and exponential wealth as a result. So, yeah, I, you know, I have to say, Corey, I am not terribly familiar with blockchain technology. I know it is linked in some ways to, to, to kind of cryptocurrency and things like that. Uh, Dean, I don't know if you can maybe shed some light uh, on, on that. I, I'm certainly no expert on that, but I will say something on finance because it's, again, an example of – you know, how we could structure things differently that would not lead to so much inequality. Um, The Federal Reserve Board could have digital bank accounts for every person, every business in the country. So Mm -hmm. what that means is that you and I, if we had a business, the business would have a separate bank account. We'd all have a bank account registered with the Fed. Wouldn't be obligated to use it, but if we wanted to, we could use it. And what that would mean is we could basically, at almost zero cost, transfer money. I owe my landlord $2,000 for this month's rent. Well, I just put it in, you know, click, 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 goes $2,000. It'd be almost costless. The Fed could do that. And I'm, I'm, this is my hypothetical. Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, was asked about this during, I forget, the Senate House hearing, but some congressional hearing. And he said, sure, we could do that. And, you know, the problem would be that that would probably put a lot of banks, he didn't use this exact term, but I'm roughly saying what he, he, he had said, that would probably put a lot of banks out of business. And, you know, I, I mean, I understand that, but, you know, the point is it would, it would save us all tens of billions of dollars a year in fees. And, of course, a lot of those banks, some of the people at the banks get very, very rich on those fees. So that's an example, an alternative way in which we could organize the financial system that, I think almost all of us would appreciate, would benefit by, and again, you don't have to use it. You just have that option, but it would lead to much, much less income going to those at the top. Okay, Dean Baker, senior economist and co-founder at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. It is always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about our economy and opportunity inside that economy. We're going to talk with author and journalist Kurt Anderson, whose book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History, looks at many of these questions about how the economy should work. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Sean in River Rouge, Karen in Detroit, John on the east side. We'll hear from you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
Here's an update from WDET General Manager Mary Zatina. We are making headway in our campaign to raise the money needed to meet WDET's budget. But as a community, we still have $1.4 million to raise before our fiscal year ends on September 30th. If you stepped up and made a donation, thank you. More than 500 listeners have joined WDET for the first time, and almost 700 have renewed their membership after years of not giving. Supporting the news, music, and conversations you hear on WDET every day is, as Andalisi might say, essential to keeping news, arts, and music in Detroit alive. And for our ability to make sure it's there whenever you want to listen, on the radio, on your mobile app, on demand, and online. If you can give and haven't yet become a member of WDET, please do it now at WDET.org. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you have joined us. We are talking today about our economy and the ways in which it distributes opportunity. More and more people these days are able to say that they are billionaires, more perhaps than ever before. Is that because of the way that the economy is structured. And if that's so, how could we change it? Should we change it to make sure that opportunity is distributed a little more equally? We want to hear from you about what you think about the economy and your chances in it. Do you think opportunity is distributed fairly uh, economically in our country? And if you don't, what would you change to make it work better? What kinds of policy actions would you take to make sure that more people have more opportunity. As always, here on the phones, the number is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or if you go to Twitter, you can hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, and joining us now to talk a little more about this subject is Kurt Anderson, who is author of Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. Kurt, welcome to Detroit Today. Happy to be here, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you say that it's harder than it has ever been to rise up in America. Talk about what has happened to put us in that position in terms of economic mobility. Well, it's, it's economic mobility, it's economic security, it's economic equality, none of which were ever perfect here or anywhere else. But they were so much better when I was young, when I was, you know, coming up in the 1970s. And then it, the system changed, the paradigm changed around 1980 and just before. Mm. And, and I was doing okay after that, so I didn't pay much or enough attention to all the ways in which the system and, and the kind of conventional wisdom about the economy and opportunity and all the rest had changed. And it changed just dramatically in the 1980s, which, again, until I did the, did the research and reading for this book over the last few years – hadn't hadn't quite realized. I mean, your your Dean Baker, uh, your previous guest, was talking about minimum wage and mm-hmm. and and how it was maintained until it wasn't in the 80s. That 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 
perpetually raising it for inflation, for instance, just stopped around 1980. So it went at the time in, in today's dollars from around $12 right before that to $7 where it's remained ever since. That's just one example at the bottom. Mm. But, uh, you know, the, in, in a more middle class way, overtime pay, another thing we got during the New Deal back in the 1930s, um, the, the, similarly, it was never cut, but the threshold at which people were, which employers were required to pay overtime pay kept getting so reduced that that eventually, you know, we went from half of workers in America getting overtime pay to a tiny percentage, uh, maybe around 10 percent today. Um, you know, so so those are just two examples mm. of, of how it's gotten harder. But but, you know, in the crushing of unions, which, again, I, I didn't realize was or hadn't fully realized until I looked back how effective and 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 swift the crushing of the labor union movement and 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 unions was between the 70s and and the 90s let's mm -hmm. say um so all of those things and more um i mean so how we fix it there are specific policy things you know i i i think what what people like um elizabeth warren and bernie sanders and other democrats have been proposing are, are many or most of those are good ideas about raising taxes on the wealthy, for instance. Um, but but there's a, beyond the various policy changes and parental leave and, and affordable education and universal health care and all of these things, by the way, mm. and, and people have to realize are, are standard in every other rich country in the world. We, we were we and the other rich countries of the world, Australia, Canada, Europe, the rest were, you know, pretty similar uh, up until the 70s. And mm. then we turned right and, and they kept going with mm. some course corrections. Uh, it's straightforward. And, and it, it, it wasn't an accident. It didn't just happen. A bunch of people got together, CEOs and right wing intellectuals and rich people and, <laughs> and, and made these changes. And, yeah. and, and, and it wasn't just an accident. So, so one of the things I think and I think that date, 1980, is is really important, uh, not just not just in the in the sort of political history, but but in the economic history. You know, the election of of Ronald Reagan takes the the nation in a really different direction uh, in in terms of all of these kinds of policies. But but here's something that I that I that I want to get you to address. It, there's no question that those changes made huge difference for people at the top and opened the door to the kind of wealth accumulation that we see over the next several decades and it, and it seems at an extreme now. But it's also true that those policies made middle class life attainable for an enormous number of people. And I, and I say that as someone who grew up in a family whose, whose economic well-being changed dramatically during the 1980s. Now, did it make us wealthy? Of course not. It did not. But it made all kinds of things possible that weren't before. And and the reason I bring that up is to sort of get to the idea that that lots of us were complicit in this this change, these changes that that created this 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 class of super wealthy people or expanded it greatly and we're not we're not blameless for 
the, for the the system that we have. We benefit as well. It's 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 just that we don't benefit in the same way uh, as as the super rich do. I couldn't agree with you more. And 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 I, recurringly through Evil Geniuses, one of its themes really is the complicity of those of us who were do, who economically were doing just fine in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. and beyond. And and uh, uh, no question. But and we that's all for a variety of individual reasons and luck and whatever whatever set of reasons. I would argue it's definitely not the systemic changes that happened then that permitted your family or me or my family to to be to be prosperous. It, it, we we were lucky, but in fact, what those changes did was uh, were were net bad hmm. or or very bad mm-hmm. for. 80% of Americans. So if you and I were in the lucky 20 or 25%, good on us, mm-hmm. but it, but, but it wasn't, uh, but we, we were lucky and, and, and offshoring jobs and outsourcing work and automation, I guess in, in my case, it didn't hurt me. Wasn't given that I was a writer and an editor, wasn't gonna hurt me. Um, uh, so yes, we lucked out, but it, it, the, the, the changes did not help most people. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, the other thing I think that in addition to, again, to the specific policies and rule changes and regulation changes of which there are so many hundreds that, that accomplished these changes over time, over a generation, it wasn't like the new deal where suddenly kaboom overnight you had all these changes. It was, okay, we'll change this regulation here. Okay. We'll start letting companies buy back their stocks. Okay. We'll do this. We'll do this. We'll do that. And over time, the 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 aggregate result of that was this incredible inequality insecurity mm-hmm. no more no more fixed pensions for most people no more affordable health care and all the rest um but i think beyond those specific policy changes this this idea this big idea that changed which was we're all in this together and we got to have everybody's back and all boats rise. And as, as your previous guest said, you know as pr- productivity went up so did median income so did minimum wage everybody all these boats mostly rose together, and mm. then we decided, nah, greed is good, and <laughs> and selfishness is is the operating principle, and and that really was a change in, in the course of a decade that has fueled this sense that, eh, no, government can't do anything to help you. You're on your own. Mm. Mm. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Let's go to Sean in River Rouge. Sean, what's on your mind? Hi, hey. how are you, Stephen? I'm good. Um, all right, yeah, so I, my, my point and my thought process behind this, I actually came up with this last night. Um, there is a power that is linked to wealth that um, we need to dismantle. So that whether it be in education, whether it be in healthcare, whether it be in credit, whether it be in uh, just the security of, I know I have X amount of dollars saved up or whatever, so if something arises, I'm okay. Or my kids, if they're if they're struggling with something, or they're not doing that great in school, I have the I can put them in this private school that will put them in a certain position and allow them to have other opportunities. Mm-hmm. If we can dismantle that and make the playing field level from the beginning, it will allow people to be less money hungry or or need that greed and need that extra wealth to get where they try to get mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. So so, but how do you? How do you change that? I mean, that is a cultural dynamic that I, I think drives what you're talking about, Sean. And that's this idea, I think, that lots of us have that 
if we just work hard enough, if we just do all the right things, we too could become wealthy. Uh, Kurt Anderson, how much does that play into to this this gap that's opened up? Well, that plays into it, certainly. And, and it's a sort of people have called the American economy, as it's been in the last 40 years, a casino economy. I mean, and 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 there and it's true too that of course the lottery and legalized gambling became state-run enterprises everywhere in at the same time and, and I don't think that's a coincidence. There's this sense of, of oh by being in America I am I am I am buying this lottery ticket to that that might make me a billionaire. Well, the odds, as with the lottery, are millions and millions <laughs> right. and millions to one. You're not going to get there. But there's nope. I, I got this lottery ticket, as opposed to. Other countries who do it differently. I, I just can't stress this enough. And I think we, all of us are. Oh yeah, we're not Denmark or we're not Norway or we're not this country. We're not. But the, these these free market economies that are prospering and have prospered for 40 years have a set of of, of safety nets in place so that people aren't feeling nervous and insecure. And I can't afford school and I can't afford healthcare and I oh my god. That, that, that all of those insecurities that drive people to, I got to make more money because because what if what if what if my school what if I got to send my kid to private school or whatever it is, there's a way to do it differently than we have been doing it. Mm. And speaking of billionaires, I, I you know we can say oh there are too many billionaires and sure let's tax the hell out of their billions that's fine with me but our actual per capita billionaire population in America is lower than in Norway, mm. Sweden, Iceland, the same as in Denmark. So you can have it both ways. You know, the pe I, people in, in Denmark talk about, well, we need we need our robust free market economy to afford our generous socialistic social welfare state, just as we need our generous socialistic social welfare state in order to keep our prosperous free market economy going. It's not one or the other. It's 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 this and, and we lost we lost that track in America. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this great conversation with Kurt Anderson, author of Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. And we are going to continue to hear from you about economic inequality. Karen in Detroit, Harry in Sterling Heights, Parker in Detroit, John on the east side. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Kurt Anderson, author of Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. We're talking about economic inequality this hour and asking the question, why is America now producing so many people who can call themselves billionaires? You want to join the conversation? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. I want to go to Harry in Sterling Heights. Harry. Hey, Welcome good, good to topic. Show. You know, I'm self-employed, and I've done relatively well in life. I can't complain. I've you know, enjoyed the benefits of the 60s and 70s. I'm 70 years old. The problem I have with these billionaires, they don't make anything. What has Jeff Bezos done? He, he distributes stuff that we would go to brick-and-mortar stores, <laughs> and he's eliminating jobs. And then you've got uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Google, 
uh, Facebook. We don't even need that. At least, at least Henry Ford made something and hired people <laughs> and created jobs. Uh, now we have to go to China. I mean, we can't make that here. Harry, I, I, I love your call because I think it is the most Detroit call we've gotten all day, right? <laughs> uh, we make stuff here. We have made stuff for centuries here, and we don't have respect for people who aren't making things that you can pick up and actually use. Uh, at, at the same time, Kurt Anderson, this this question of how people can get wealthy in this country has changed. Henry Ford, as uh, Harry points out, made cars and 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 patented a manufacturing process uh, that made him wealthy. It's really different now. And yeah. and I think it asks different things of government and and regulators to to be able to figure out how to make that fair. Well, and I would propose that looking at the way things used to be in a different way uh, as I do in the book. Uh, you look back 50, 60 years to 60 years to when AT&T and GM were the big giant companies. Sorry, mm-hmm. Ford, but it was GM and <laughs> right. AT&T. And, and uh, they had the, the, the number of employees they had, over a million employees. The, you know, the, the, those businesses uh, were, were huge employers right? Mm-hmm. The difference now, I mean, apart from, oh, Zuckerberg doesn't make anything or Bezos doesn't make anything. Well, that's the way it is. And that's really not going to change. But the problem is, and the problem we have to figure out how to fix is that those companies, these giant tech companies, A, hire only employ tiny fractions of what their their uh, counterpart companies, AT&T and GM 60 years ago, employed. So what what are those what are the rest of the people going to do because there aren't enough well-paying jobs yeah. for all those equivalent hundreds of thousands millions of Americans that's the change that change is not going to go back we're not going to you know unless we want to pay uh, uh, a lot more money for all of our products we're not going to stop automating we're not going to stop buying things from overseas so it's it's a bigger problem it's not and 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 that's to me the the, the worthwhile comparison to then and now also you know companies like google and facebook are incredible monopolies like we didn't used to allow to exist in this country we would break them up we would we would we would regulate them we would do all kinds of things that's what antitrust was invented to do in the end of the 19th century and 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 we've abandoned that as well so you know i i get the sentimental uh, nostalgic missing of yeah you know manufacturing in those days which mm. were great but they were great for all kinds of reasons that had nothing to do with making physical things as opposed to software mm. they were great because there were strong unions and they were great because there was this this set of norms that didn't for instance pay CEOs 500 times their average employee instead of just 50 times as it was back in the day yeah yeah again harry really really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Parker in Detroit. Parker. Gentlemen, how are you? Good morning. Good, Good conversation. Thank you. How are you? I'm all right. Um, I, I look at it from a different perspective. There are so many points you all hit on. One of the things that happened in the 80s, is what you all did hit on, was technology. Technology was introduced into the fabric, and it changed everything. Uh, it, 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 you know, it, it has brought about so many different billionaires and, and all the good stuff. And with that, you don't have the same perspective as the Carnegie's who would take some of their money and then build libraries and things of that nature to help the social aspect of which your guest spoke of, I think it was Norway or Sweden where 
you get the social aspect that helps the billionaires and the billionaires help the social aspect. Hmm. From my own observation, what I've seen when I was uh, hanging around people who had money and allowing me to be in that social circle was that um, I saw those who had a certain amount and they had more materialistic stuff than they need. And I saw many who would not go past the Walmart line. And um, once they got it, they forgot about their perspective lives. And a lot of times now it seems like there is no uh, no, no looking back and, and, and uh, giving back to hmm. communities that need it. It's all about stashing money offshore. Uh, it's not that imagination of going back to a, a less than poverty situation or even uh, worse than where you might have come from. It seems like every now, most of the billionaires and millionaires are building these luxury, luxury locks and houses <laughs> bigger than they need and all that. From my perspective, if, if, if there was a tax, then there should be a tax on if you build a house uh, past a certain amount, then a certain amount should be given back to a certain hmm. community to build a library, to build a, a technology center. To do something like that, I'm so not you, even going forever. So, I'm, yeah. but I'm gonna step off and uh, let you off. Pick so, up Parker, right here. yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really that's a really interesting point. And and uh, Kurt, this question of what the the uber rich do with their money is one of the pieces uh, of this conversation, and and that has changed as well over time as they've gotten wealthier. The the, the, the sense of uh, obligation, I guess, uh, looks looks really different um, than it used to. Well, and I'm, you know, when people like my fellow Omahan uh, Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. uh, as he did years ago, said, I'm giving 95% of my tens of billions of dollar fortune away to good causes. Mm-hmm. Good on him. And, and the more that billionaires do that, uh, it's fine. But we can't depend on the on the kindness of strangers of billionaires you know i mean we do need as as the caller just said you know we need a systematic things you know either yes if you make this much you've got to give back this way and that's called taxes of course mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that's called taxing the wealthy at the appropriate rate that they were taxed for you know all of our great golden era of the 50s and 60s and 70s and and the economy did just fine and people worked hard and people got rich and it was all good right and so that that's what you you know you need to get back to and indeed uh changing the norms back to where it's not all just mine 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 i got mine and mm-hmm. and all i care about are the lowest possible taxes and all i care about are stock market prices and and the rest of you you know sorry losers you're on your own we changed from from a certain kind of America to the other. And as I say, it wasn't just a natural evolution. It wasn't just, oh, here we've changed our minds. It was we we, we, uh, people uh, interested in in, in increasing the power of big business and increasing the wealth of the rich (laughs) pushed it in that direction. I mean, sure, there's a pendulum swing and things go back and forth and, okay, we're going to be more free markety now. But uh, this was this was the system was re-engineered and and my belief if we can manage to 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 achieve the political will is it can be engineered back to the way more people most people most Americans uh, prosper and are helped by this and 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 that, that just that sense of insecurity which is unnecessary in this rich country doesn't exist anymore I did a I did a I'll just end here but I did a uh, 
did some math hmm. in the course of this book. I saw, okay, what is the total uh, income and wealth of all America? Well, how many households are there? Let's just divide that up. Which isn't to say that everybody should have, we should have, have a communist country where everybody gets the same and it's all doled out. I'm not suggesting that. But as an illustration of how rich we are, if you did that, if you divided all the wealth and all the income by the households, I, people are shocked by this. I was shocked by this. The, the, the wealth per household it approaches a million dollars. The net worth, $800,000. Hmm. The, the average net worth of American households. The average income of American households, taking in all income and government payments and everything else, is over 100,000, is, is close to 140,000. So that's how rich we are. Every, every household could be earning $140,000 and have 800,000 in real estate and banks, accounts and whatever. Well, that, I mean, just as a, as a starting point of, well, that's how rich we are. Hmm, we're really not dividing it up anywhere close to that. <laughs> look how rich we are and look, what, look how many people are, are, are benefiting from that. And it really, it's the top fifth and obviously, especially, the, the top few percent of, of people. Mm -hmm. Again, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Hey, I've got about a minute left, Dennis, but I okay, want to get well, you Okay, well, real here. quick, uh, the CARES Act brings in the word care. It's very interesting to me. We have an investment class that does a, and what do they care about? You know, I won't mention a name, but there's a, mm prominent restaurant that the investment class or the uh, the investment people said stop serving so many uh breadsticks hmm. Hmm. uh you know so they're not concerned about a lot of things but you can figure out they're concerned about I, my heart broke when our um, uh Mackinac island what's the hotel the grand hotel sure. sold to an investment class yeah. they fired a a, a gentleman at, almost in his 90s and they took his statues away because they didn't care. So mm. care is my word. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dennis, I appreciate it. We've got about 30 seconds left, Carter. I'll give you the last word. Well, that's a good, he makes a good point because what happened is that economic efficiency and market values and overtook all other values. Of course, those are going to be values in the mix of American values. But what happened around 1980 is those values eclipsed all others. And here we go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Kurt Anderson, author of Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. It was really, really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks My very pleasure. much. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow for our WDET Book Club conversation with NPR's Eric Deggins about pop culture and politics of the 1950s when Ralph Ellison was writing Invisible Man. Plus, this week marks the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote in this country. And we're going to take a look at what it means to be a feminist in America in 2020. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.